First John 3.16. I know our Wednesday night attendance is waning, um, but I think that what we're talking about on Wednesday nights is good stuff. So we're just going to continue to talk about it, and the ones that want to come will be here, and the ones that don't, won't. So, before I get into the passage tonight, I think you'll notice that 1 John 3.16 has a lot of parallels to John 3.16. I don't know whether you've ever looked at it from that way, but if you write down John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16, there are a lot of similarities to those two verses. Now, John's been talking a lot about love in our lives because there is probably no quality, no characteristic of a follower of Jesus Christ that more aligns us with God, more demonstrates being right with God, being righteous, if you will, than love. And that's why he's really been, in a sense, hammering on the subject of love and of being a loving person and really understanding even what love is. Because let's face it, we even live in a world today that most people would say, I know what love is, and they really have no clue. There's even Christians that really don't have a proper biblical understanding of what love is. They think they know what love is, but they really don't. And so that's why John is really taking his time here and focusing on the subject of love. It is not something that really can be overstated, that can be taught too much. Can any of us hear too many messages on love? I don't think so. And that's why John really sort of pauses here in the middle of this letter and wants to give us even deeper thoughts about love. And I hope that that some of the the thoughts that that I share tonight would would move you as it it moved me in, in reading and studying these verses leading up to tonight. You'll notice in 1 John 3.16, John says, We have come to know love. By this. The word know means to become acquainted with or to recognize something. And so John is saying if someone wants to become acquainted with love, if someone wants to recognize what true love is, notice he says, then it's looking at Jesus. We have come to know love by this, that Jesus laid down His life for us. If we ever want to be schooled in love, if we want to improve and become more knowledgeable and more understanding about what love is and what it looks like and how it acts and how it reacts and how it responds and how it how it speaks, and what attitude and all that. All we have to do is look at Jesus. Which is why I think the Bible so often is directing our thoughts and attention to Jesus. Saying, look at Him. Follow Him. John, even earlier in this very letter, said in 1 John 2, 6, we, are, we should walk as Jesus walked. In fact, over in chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Dear friends, if God so loved us, 
then we also ought to love one another, which is what he's going to tell us here in 1 John 3, 16. Notice again, John says, we have come to know love by this. We have come to become more acquainted with love and to recognize what love is by this. That Jesus laid down his life for us. He gave up his life for us. That's what it means to lay down. He laid aside his life for us. In fact, very interestingly, the origin of these words literally mean to lie outstretched. And think about what that pictures. To lie outstretched. It is really the picture of one that would be on a cross. Dying to self. That's what Jesus did for us. And so notice, he says, based on this, based on the life and example of Jesus, he says, thus, we ought. We ought. And the word ought means it is our responsibility then. It is our duty as followers of Jesus Christ to lay down our lives for who? Our fellow Christians our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's where it starts. See, I think a lot of times as Christians, we, we, we can focus on sort of laying down our lives for, for those out in the world in some way, but God says it starts right with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It starts with the church. It starts with the body of Christ. If we can't truly love our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we really won't love those that don't know Christ. It has to start here. That's where God wants it to start. That's why there's so many commands in the New Testament for us as Christians to love our fellow Christians and to lay down our lives for our fellow Christians. To literally lie outstretched for one another, to give up our lives for our fellow Christians, to lay aside our life for our brothers and sisters in Christ. What's that mean to us tonight? How can we apply this to our lives? I mean, that's something that you and I, I think, we need to continually contemplate. We've got to consider because that's our responsibility as brothers and sisters in Christ. That that's the kind of love that God calls us to. Not this ooey-gooey feeling that we have for one another, maybe, but, but that we literally lay down and lay aside and give up our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. When you think about how that would transform the local church, because as I said, so many Christians today, church and being part of a body is so much about themselves that they don't realize that by not truly being a part of the body and being here and being faithful and serving their brothers and sisters in Christ, that they're really withholding love from their brothers and sisters in Christ. They're not laying down their lives for their brothers and sisters in Christ. 
They're not sacrificing in any way for their fellow believers. It's about what they can get out of the local church and what the local church can do for them, but not approaching it from this perspective. And yet this is the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated, and this is the kind of love that his followers should have. And it is totally incompatible in the Bible, totally incongruous for someone to claim that I love the head of the body, Jesus, but I have very little regard for the, the rest of the body, if you will. I, I love the head of the church, but I don't really love the body. Because the body of Christ is the church. It is you and I. It is our fellow believers. And there's no way, according to the Bible, that one can truly, again, be in fellowship with the head and not truly be in fellowship with the body of Christ, the church. And I can't claim that I love Christ, the head of the church, but I have very little love or little regard for the body, the church. And that's what John is saying. Because John, again, is attacking these false teachers and people who crept in and influenced this church into thinking that lifestyle doesn't matter and it doesn't matter how we treat one another. All that matters is that I claim to be a Christian and what I have up here in my head. It doesn't need to affect my behavior and my lifestyle. And John says, oh, no, 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 no. When God gets a hold of a life, that life will be transformed. That life will be changed. And one of the things that will change is that there will be an ever-growing regard and love and even sacrifice for the body of Christ, the church, for our fellow believers. John is going to tell us that's one of the greatest ways that we are reassured in our Christian life, that we are in fellowship with God and that we know God is, is through our being willing to lay down our lives for our fellow Christians. Before I pass on into verse 17, again, I just want to say to you tonight, I think that this is a verse that you and I need to continually consider. In what practical ways am I as a Christian Laying down my life for my fellow Christians. What sacrifice am I making for my fellow believers? What am I giving up in my life in order to benefit and profit my fellow Christians? What am I laying aside so that others can benefit? That's the way a Christian should think. Because that's the way Christ thought. That even though... He was God of very God. He did not come to this earth to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Before I get into verse 17, as I was meditating on that verse, 1 John 3.16, God reminded me of a couple other verses that I want to talk to us about tonight. In fact, I could do a whole sermon series on these couple of verses. I'd like you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. I think these are profound verses for us as believers in Jesus Christ. And here again, Paul 
like John, is talking about love, but here he's not talking about our love for our fellow Christians or even our love for God. He's talking about God's love for us. Because Paul wants to teach us something that really before you and I, even as a follower of Jesus Christ, can lay down my life for others, even my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, I have to receive Christ's love for me. I have to be affected by Christ's love for me. I have to receive it. I can't just say, I believe Jesus loves me. I can't just sing the song, Jesus loves me. I can't just acknowledge Jesus loves me. I truly have to receive it. Because what Paul is saying here in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 5 is, there is power in the love of Jesus for us. There's not just power in the blood of Jesus, there is power in the love of Jesus. Notice what Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. Now, just that phrase, like I said, I, I, could, I could do a sermon series on just that phrase because it is profound. But one of the things that Paul is saying here is this. He's saying that if I truly receive the love that Jesus has for me, it will be a continual motivating influence in my life. It will grip me. It will, it will affect me. It will lead to a, a almost a compulsion, if you will, to, to love others. Because I am so affected by God's love through Christ for me. That's why Paul says he laid down his life in the first century, for the church. It's why he did what he did, Paul said. Because he said, when I truly received the love of Christ, it controlled me. It compelled me. It, it was this, again, motivating influence that just gripped my life and and basically drove me every day. A question I think that we all need to ask ourselves is, have we truly received that love? I mean, really received it. Because if so, Paul says, when a person truly receives Christ's love for them, this is what will happen, because there's power there. There's power in recognizing and receiving the love that Jesus has for us. The love that was willing to lay down His life. No one took His life from Him. He laid it down. No one murdered Jesus. The Romans didn't take Jesus' life, and the Jewish authorities didn't take Jesus' life. No one could take the prince of life's life from him unless he was willing to lay it down. And Paul says, when you and I really 
understand what Jesus did for us. And when we receive it, because I, I really do believe that it's possible to be a Christian and in, in some way acknowledge that I know God loves me and that Jesus you know, loved me and He laid down His life and He died for me. And I even believe in Him as my Savior without really receiving His love. I really do. I think there are a lot of Christians out there even to this day. And one of the reasons I I believe that is because there are a lot of Christians who are not being controlled (laughs) by the love of Christ. They're still living primarily for themselves. They have not gotten to this point yet where they really received this kind of love that really inspires them and motivates them and influences them and compels them and urges them. And then Paul goes on to say, the love of Christ controls us since we have concluded this. And I think he's talking here to believers. That Christ died for all. Therefore, all in Christ have died. In fact, that's what, that's what baptism symbolizes. You realize, again, that, that's one of the, the reasons, I think, why God calls us to be baptized. Not that baptized saves us, but baptized is this beautiful picture of us going under the water and dying to self. And then being raised up out of the water to this newness of life where we, again, live no longer for ourselves, but for Him and for others, you see. So that's why Paul goes on to say, Therefore, because all have died and He died for all, verse 15, so that those who live, notice this, very important, should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and was raised. Wow. Not only as Christians are we identified with Christ in His death, we are also to be identified with Christ in His self-sacrifice. And notice what Paul here is teaching. He's teaching us that Jesus died for us in order that we might die to self. That's what he's teaching here. Jesus died for us so that we might die to self. So that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised. Unbelievable verses here in 2 Corinthians 2. And the reason that I was directed to these is because they fall right along the same line that John's talking about in 1 John 3.16. How can you and I as followers of Jesus Christ get to the place where we are willing to lay down our lives for our fellow Christians when we truly have received the love of Jesus for us and, and it controls us? It is this motivating influence that says self It's not about you anymore. It's about living for Christ and living for others. It's about dying to self, which is what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Dead to self. 
That's why Jesus said, you want to be my disciple? You've got to be willing to take up your cross daily and follow me. We've got to lie outstretched on that cross every day and we've got to say no to self. We've got to die to self in order to live the Christ-like life. In order to be followers of Jesus Christ, it can no longer be about us. It's got to be about living for Christ and living for others. It's got to be about bringing Him honor and glory and laying down our lives for our fellow Christians. But the only way we get to that place, I direct our attention back to 2 Corinthians 5.14, is when the love of Christ controls us. where it is the controlling influence in our lives. Where we are so overwhelmed with Jesus' love for us and for what He did for us that living selfishly becomes almost abhorrent. It, it, it becomes distasteful. It leaves a bad taste in our mouth when we do something for us rather than for Christ and for others. Back to 1 John. So John gets real practical here. He says, I, I've talked to you about love and especially loving your fellow Christians and laying down your life. So John says, let me, let me be real practical about this. Verse 17, Whoever, whichever one of you Christians, has the world's possessions, in other words, you have at your disposal resources, worldly, earthly resources, and you see that you have a fellow Christian. Notice, he's not yet talking about unbelievers. Or people in the world. Not that we shouldn't help people in the world. Not that we shouldn't help everybody and love everybody. But John says it's got to start with the family of God. That's God's program. It's got to start with the family of God. If we can't take care of one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, then really are we going to regard those that aren't even our brothers and sisters in Christ? And if somehow we have a greater love for unbelievers than we do our brothers and sisters in Christ, then there's something majorly wrong in our spiritual life. So John says, whoever has this world's resources and sees, it comes to your attention that there is a fellow Christian in need, literally without and you shut off your compassion against him. Literally in the original language, it's you close your heart off to that person. You do not allow what they're going through or their need to affect you in any way. John says, how can the love of God reside in such a person? He's not saying you can't be saved. He's not saying you can't be a Christian. What he's saying is, how can God's love be operating and influencing your life when you're like that? Well, obviously, the, the answer is it can't. 
Agape love, God-like love, cannot be flowing through our bodies at that moment if we just shut off our compassion. If it does, if, if when we, you know, hear of, of something, it doesn't affect us in any way, especially if we have the resources to meet the need. Can I tell you, because I don't think I've even shared this with anybody at the Oasis yet. This was the very verse that God brought to my attention the night that Nellie came up to me many moons ago now after a Wednesday night Bible study and said, Pastor, could I ask you to pray for a pastor friend of mine named Miguel Olachea? And I said, sure. I said, what specifically would you like me to be praying about? And she said, well, he pastors this church in Mexicali and they have a meeting place, but their building is pretty run down. In fact, they don't even have a roof over their head. And they have many needs in their church. And I just wanted to bring him up and his, his church up for prayer. It was as if God just took that verse and just... I, I've heard now about a fellow brother, a fellow pastor, and a fellow church in need. And God has blessed us at the Oasis so much. How could I not in some way be affected by that? And that's how this whole thing with them got going. God wants us always to have a heart that's open to the needs of others. Especially, again, everyone, yes, but especially our fellow Christians. Because that's the context here. Again, let me read verse 17. Whoever has the world's possessions and sees his fellow Christian in need and shuts off his compassion against him, closes off his heart, how can the love of God be operating and influencing such a person? Verse 18. Little children. Again, a term that John has used throughout his letter. A term that speaks about being deeply loved. John is saying, you realize how much God loves you, right? You realize, right, how much God loves you. Let us not love with word, or, oh, excuse me, let us not love only with word or with tongue. You don't get that maybe in the English, but that's exactly what John is saying here. He's not against us loving with word and tongue. I mean, the Bible is filled with how we should use our mouth and our lips and our words to edify and build each other up. And Paul especially, and, and John too, many of the apostles were great, especially in the letters that we have in the Bible, at verbalizing their affection and their love for their fellow believers. I mean, John, Paul's letters are filled with it. So it's important that we love in word or tongue. That John's not discounting that. But what John is saying is, but it has to go beyond that too. It's important that we say to others 
how much they mean to us and all of that. That's important. But John says we also must go beyond that and we must do it in deed and in truth. Now, I want to I want to stop here with the word deed. This word speaks about giving something forethought and effort. In other words, it's not just doing a deed for someone. It's a deed that requires forethought and effort on our part. That's love. Love isn't just doing what I think or what I want to do for that other person. It's giving it some thought, maybe even praying about it. And putting forth some kind of effort. That's love. And then very interestingly notice that he says, in deed and truth. That seems sort of strange because like earlier in verse 18, I get word and tongue, that, that sort of goes together. So you'd think he would have said, also in deed and action. But he says, no, deed and truth. Why? What's he trying to get across there? He's trying to say that in also as we love in deed, it has got to line up with the truth of God. It's got to line up with the character and nature of God. It's got to be something that is God-directed and God-empowered. That's truth. That's truth. Again, it can't be what I want. It's got to be what God directs and what God empowers me to do. That's loving others as we should. And then John, very interestingly, goes into verses 19 and 20, the two verses we'll end with tonight. Because he, again, wants to sort of encourage these Christians who've gone through some rough times in their local church. He says, look, one of the great byproducts of living a life of love is being continually reassured, as I said earlier. And that's what John wants to talk to them about here. He says, and by this, speaking about loving, not just in word or tongue, but in deed and truth, by this we will know that we are of the truth. We will be assured through first-hand experience that we are literally out of the truth. That's literally in the Greek language what it means. It means to be authentic. John is saying, you want to be reassured that you are an authentic, genuine, real Christian? Live this kind of love. Because only a person that has truly received the love of Christ and is being empowered by the Holy Spirit can live a life of selfless sacrifice like Jesus did. Because humanly speaking, left to ourselves, it's going to be all about us. And even as Christians, if we don't allow the Spirit of God to control us and be in the driver's seat and walk in the Spirit, then we can be pretty selfish ourselves. It is only when we are following Christ, letting His love control us, 2 Corinthians 5.14, and being controlled by the Holy Spirit can we truly live a life where we're laying down our lives for others consistently? Where it's not about us. Where it's about everyone else. 
And John says, when you and I are living that way, God actually builds into that kind of a life a great reassurance. Because we, we understand the only way I can, the only way I have the capacity or the ability to do this is because I know God. And God lives within me. And God is allowing me to do this. Because left to myself, I'd live for me. And then John goes on to say, by this kind of lifestyle, we will know that we are of the truth and also will convince our conscience in his presence. Because John's going to go on to tell us in verse 20 that, yes, God gave us a conscience, but our conscience after the fall was fallible. We can have either an overactive conscience, that I think what John is referring to here, or we can have an underactive conscience. In fact, the Bible even says we can sear our conscience by, by saying no to it so often that we don't pay attention even to that moral control center that God built within every human being, that we can literally sear it. And, and Paul basically says it's like dead skin that's been burned. It gets cauterized. It, there, there's no feeling there anymore. But here John is saying that if you and I want to set our hearts at rest in His presence, then just live this kind of lifestyle. And there's something too profound about the words in His presence. Things change when we're in His presence. And I think God here even wants to reassure us and encourage us in His presence. Which is why it's so important that you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, spend time in His presence. It's, it's that place where our hearts can truly be set at rest. Where the, the worries and the concerns and the fears and the anxieties and the stress of our day can literally be wiped away in His presence. Where an overactive conscience can be set right in His presence. For John goes on to say in verse 20, if our conscience does condemn us, if this moral control center that is now fallible due to the fall is continually accusing us and pronouncing us guilty, he says, here's something encouraging. God is greater than our conscience. God is the only perfect and infallible judge. Why? Because God knows all things. The end of verse 20. God's omniscient. There's nothing that God doesn't know. And sometimes even when we, our, our conscience is bothering us in, in, a, in an unnecessary way. Again, we're being bothered about things we shouldn't be bothered about. And remember too that the enemy can play off of that too. The, the accuser. He can use our conscience to just constantly accuse us. That John says, here's the remedy, here's the antidote. Come into the presence of God and let the ultimate judge who knows all things, let him set your heart at rest in his presence and rest in his judgment. Now obviously if the Holy Spirit's convicting us about something, we need to pay attention to that. And if our conscience is legitimately bothering us about something, we need to pay attention to that. 
But John here is talking about it from another standpoint. He's saying there are times even as a Christian where my conscience shouldn't be bothering me, but it is. And John is saying in those moments, thank God that he's omniscient, that he's infallible, even though our conscience is fallible. And that he really knows. He knows our heart. The example that I, the best example that I can find of of this actually playing out in real life, and I think maybe to give us even a better picture of this, is after the resurrection of Jesus, when he meets Peter. You know, Peter, the last time he and Jesus had contact there, Peter didn't do so well. Peter denied the Lord, said he didn't even know Jesus. I mean, he, he, he burned. He, he went down in flames. And so I'm sure in, in Peter's even conscience and stuff, there was like, has God forgiven me? Are me and Jesus going to be okay? Is, is there any chance of me ever serving him again? And, you know, all of this, I'm, I'm sure. Because, you know, you and I play through those same things in our life when we fail the Lord. And so when he and Jesus met and they had that conversation there at the end of the Gospel of John, remember Jesus is probing and asking Peter questions. Do you love me? And what's Peter's response? Lord, you know I love you. You know. He kept repeating back to Jesus, you know. You know. You know all things. You know my heart. You know where I'm at. You you know how really bad I feel about failing you. You know how bad I want to serve you again and that I I want a second chance. You know, Lord, I'm I'm laying it at your feet because I know that you know. And so that's how Peter could could in a sense get get past his failure and move on and accept the forgiveness that Jesus would give him and and be able to be used in unbelievable ways throughout the rest of his life, even after he miserably failed. How could he do that? Because he came to the one who knew all things and he rested in the knowledge that God had of his own heart. And that's what John's saying here. John is saying... Don't let your conscience be the ultimate judge. Ever. Don't you, as a human, fallible human being, be the ultimate judge. Don't let some other human being who's fallible be the ultimate judge. Come to the only one who knows all things and let God be the the ultimate judge. If when you and I come into the presence of God, God says to us, my child, you and I are okay. We're okay, let's move on. Then move on. Set your heart at rest in His presence. And rest in the fact that if God who knows all things is okay, then we can be okay. Because God is greater than our heart. He's greater than our conscience. All those other things are fallible. Only God is perfect and infallible. Let's pray. God, I...
I pray tonight that once again your word would not be something that just is information that fills our heads. God, I truly pray tonight that we would be overwhelmed with your love for us. And that we would allow that love to so affect us, so move us, that from this time forward, we we would live differently. That we would make a conscious effort every day to die to self. To let the love of Christ so control us that we would no longer live our lives on earth for ourselves, but for you who died for us and rose again. And God, I pray also that we would have such love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would be willing to continually lay down our lives for them just as you did for us. God, let us not just love in word and in tongue. Let's not just talk about loving others. Let's get out there and truly begin to love each other in deed and in truth. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys, for being here tonight. We'll see you next week.